Hi everyone, welcome to episode 8 of Talking Transitions, the podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy and EY. I'm David Weston, Foresight's Editor-in-Chief. If you've missed any of the episodes so far, you can find them wherever you get your podcasts. So once you've listened to this one, do go back and check them out. This episode was recorded in Dubai on the afternoon of day 7 of the COP28 Summit. In this panel, we focus on what cities are doing now to help transition in a just and equitable way. Enjoy the show and please leave your feedback on the website or on social media. Use the hashtag TalkingTransitions, all one word, to join the conversation. Hi everyone, uh, thank you for joining us here on the EY stand this afternoon. Uh, this session is being recorded as part of our Talking Transitions podcast, a new series between EY and Foresight Climate and Energy. Uh, it is a series all about the range of transitions that need to take place in order to develop a sustainable economy. Throughout the podcasts, we're looking across three key areas and how they're facing up to their own set of transition challenges, the energy and resources industry, the financial services sector, and government. My name is David Weston. I'm Editor-in-Chief at Foresight, and guiding me through the series will be key EY thought leaders from the three different areas. In today's episode, being recorded from the Green Zone at COP28 in Dubai, I'm joined by George Atala, EY Global Government and Public Sector Leader. Hi, George. Hi, David. Good to be with you. We heard this morning and in the previous podcast uh, how cities are facing up to the challenges of transitioning to a sustainable economy. But what about the impact on the people that live there too? Our guests today to talk about how the lives are going to change in the face of a new sustainable reality are Hugh Lim, Executive Director at the Center for Livable Cities, Victor Pineda, President and Founder of World Enabled, Valid Al-Gamdi, Director of Sustainability at Roshan, and Corey Ricalde, Senior Director for Environment, Social and Government at the Carrier Corporation. Please welcome all of our guests. George, maybe I could briefly uh, begin with you. EY recently launched a new piece of research called Longitude. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that, the findings about cities and, and livable cities, anything particularly surprising or insightful that came from the report? Yes, I'd, I'd love to, David. So we did a piece of research. The piece of research was across 12 countries and 6,000 respondents, uh, sorry, 12 cities and 6,000 respondents. And the cities were on purpose chosen to be between rich developed cities and cities that are still on the verge of developing and becoming more mature. And what was very surprising, and just to cover what the research, what we wanted to find out, we wanted to find out and address questions like equity. We wanted to understand how people perceive their cities and the kinds of services that they want to get uh, from their cities. And I think what surprised us was there were some consistent answers across different cities, even though the cities were not the same. So people were answering the same things in Jakarta, in Dubai, and in Sydney, uh, amongst the cities that we looked at. And then what also surprised us were that some of the problems that we thought were associated with developing cities actually came out more acutely in developed cities. So we did look at Singapore, but you know, I can you know, list the cities that we looked at. But I just to give you a few examples. Please. Um, I think what came out as a main or a core area of interest for those respondents 
was that it wasn't just necessarily about climate change and sustainability, but it was about livability. So livability in the city, sustainability, climate change being parts, an important part of livability. But really the main thing was livability. And by livability, it meant things like urban transport. It meant like things like access to jobs, education. So, you know, there were, there were some areas also that we thought were a bit surprising, for instance, uh, if you look at Vancouver and at Sydney, which are, you know, fairly rich cities, urban transport and the need for better urban transport came top on their lists, right? I would have expected to see that more in Jakarta, for instance, but it came out in Sydney and, and in Vancouver. The second thing that came out was um, equity. And by equity, meaning everything from inequality, but also it meant access to parks and people being able to, to enjoy a, you know, the, a better community with nature. Uh, I, I still remember um, the, one of the statements made by the governor of Jakarta where he said, we're building parks, not just because it's an infrastructure thing, but it's also a sociological thing. So we see it as a way for our citizens to feel better about their city, to mix across social uh, economic groups, right? So this came out. Uh, there were areas as well that we thought were interesting were um, things like uh, access to digital services from government inside the city, right? So that, that research was uh, very instructive. I think the one thing that I want to point out uh, is that citizens see their cities as, as the provider of services to them they associate services with cities far more than they associate services with the central or federal government. Cities are probably the least equipped to be able to provide those services. So there's a, a bit of a disconnect between the citizens' expectations and what the cities within the resources that are available to them can provide. Uh, how have cities adapted to the changing landscape of climate, demographics, economics, how are cities responded to those recent changes? So the question that's often asked is, you know, is there one blueprint? Is there, you know, kind of a set of rules that if every city followed, everything would be just fine? And this is clearly not what's coming out. There are some lessons to be learned. There are best practices that can be learned across cities. I think there is, I, I believe that there is a huge importance to sharing among cities. And we see quite a few organizations now, C40, the Rockefeller, etc., that are encouraging the sharing of experiences across cities. Uh, there is no single blueprint, but there are some guidelines. And, you know, first among those guidelines, financing, funding, where is the money coming from, inclusion, you know, how are your citizens involved in the decision making? All of these are becoming very important. And some cities have made incredible progress. I was in Copenhagen recently, it's quite impressive what they've done on the area of sustainability and, you know, providing a more active and, and uh, healthy uh, existence for their citizens. Um, Waleed, maybe I can bring you in here. In what ways can cities be seen as, as real drivers of an equitable transition? Um, like like men uh, George mentioned, I think uh, when we talk about equity or, or equitable uh, um, cities, we talk about how people have access uh, to uh, uh, the services that they require. And, and in many cases, we talk about energy. Um, but I think George mentioned parks. 
as, as an additional uh, uh, service. Um, I think one of the issues that we can do through, through cities, uh, and I'm going to talk about my own Saudi perspective, is that uh, in order for us to, to realize um, some of the technological opportunities that are exist today, because we've, we've figured out a lot of technological questions um, uh, over, over the past decade or so, but I think uh, a lot of other components of this ecosystem has, have not caught up. Um, including financing, I think, I think uh, George mentioned that, uh, uh, regulation and, and, and I think engagement uh, and, and awareness in general. I'll give you an example of something that we, we've done uh, uh, at our company. And, and so we, we are we're a real estate company, we build homes, um, massive amount of homes. Um, our mandate is to build 400,000 in, in the next eight years or so. Um, so w one of the things we've been trying to do is to, to enable this, the, the end user, so the, 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 some, the person who's going to buy the home, to have a lifestyle that is a bit more energy efficient, less carbon emissions. Now, we figured out technically how to do that. But the problem is if we do it, the end user won't be able to buy it. And uh, it, our core KPI as a, as a business is to increase home ownership in the country to 70%. So that is a national strategy. We are established as a company to further that national strategy we can build the best sustainable building, best sustainable home, but you know, no, one's, no, one, no one can live there. And uh, we're a for-profit business. Uh, I think our heart is in the right place. We've, we've, we've explored what can be technically possible, but what's stopping is perhaps, is there a way where there's a new incentive structure? Is there a new regulatory structure? Can we change the way the zoning uh, works so that maybe we can gain some land efficiency in exchange of energy efficiency? Things around that. And so that's only one example uh, um, of how uh, we can uh, improve uh, uh, equity, but also transition to a more sustainable Hugh, Walid mentioned the sort of technical uh, advancements that's helping cities become more equitable. Um, how can we harness technological advancements to create and maintain sustainable cities that work for everyone? And do you have maybe any examples that you could point to? Thank you very much for the question, David. Um, I think from Singapore's uh, own experience, uh, maybe I'll share three, three levels at which I think cities can help in terms of translating technological progress into facilitating an equitable uh, transition. I think one of this is really at the city scale or the, the, town, the town scale, and uh, we use uh, what we call an integrated environment modeler uh, to actually map out where new towns, buildings should go. Uh, in Singapore's case, to facilitate uh, wind flow so that you can minimize the need for artificial cooling. So the layouts of the towns, we check what are the prevailing winds. We allow the winds to flow through. In some cases, it meant uh, some of the... Uh, public housing buildings that would have gone up, they have, they have gaps. So we reduce the number of units in order to allow wind to go through. What that translates into is that the, the housing estate, the entire housing estate is a lot cooler uh, because of that wind flow. The uh, second thing we do is we look at where do you put recreational facilities. So if it's going to be shaded because of a building that comes up, then you have an opportunity to put a playground or a sports facility there. And um, at the same time, if you're going to solarize the roofs, then you make sure that you're not putting it in the shade, but where it catches the, the maximum light. And so all our new towns are, are using 
uh, tools like these to, to benefit. Then at the building level, the government actually puts in place minimum standards. So it makes sure that developers give the future residents of the building an energy-efficient building uh, to begin with and, and not stick them with something that, that guzzles. And uh, finally, at the individual home level, uh, we've started a program to put in smart meters uh, into the building so that owners know what's consuming and, and can take steps to, to, to reduce it. And um, in fact, right now, we have a voucher program that's on also to allow lower-income homes uh, to be able to afford um, more energy-efficient appliances. So that helps to subsidize the cost of uh, appliances that mm. are well-rated but may cost more at the start. Mm. And uh, I think these are ways that uh, cities can facilitate uh, both at the city scale all the way down. And I like the idea that um, George shared, you know, that uh, cities can share what they're doing with mm. one another uh, in order to be able to produce the best outcomes possible. And for Singapore, we've tremendously benefited from that kind of sharing for other cities as well. Absolutely. Um, Corey, we've, we've spoken about uh, how cities, um, and George mentioned how cities are seen as a, the city governments are seen as the key sort of service providers uh, for its citizens. How can the private sector effectively collaborate and con contribute to sustainable cities? So uh, for those of you who are not familiar with Carrier, we are an HVAC and refrigeration company. Um, and so we partner, uh, I mean, right here we have our customers um, from Saudi to Singapore. And um, the way that we can enable our customers to achieve their decarbonization goals is very much how we look at our own. Um, so when we look at our overall carbon footprint for us, the majority of our carbon footprint sits with our products in use. And, the, and we recently launched our net zero, uh, 20, net zero by 2050 plan, and it very much aligns with the solutions that would be um, applicable to any customer, city, or, or therefore. Um, so the way we look at it is about 45% of our net zero emissions can come from electrification and energy efficiency. So electrifying the building, providing those, um, those solutions, but not losing sight on energy efficiency. Because as all of our technologies become ever more so electric, we're going to add additional load to the grid. And so we have to think about that. It's not enough that we have a renewable energy source powering it, but we have to allow that resiliency um, through energy efficiency and the second point being digital and energy storage right so that's going to those another component in terms of how we look at um, cities and buildings across whatever application um, refrigerants is another component of that as well um, the technologies that we are increasingly offering to customers because of um, the net zero trend I'm sorry because of the uh, refrigerant transition um, Ever increasingly, we're providing those uh, low GWP refrigerant technologies. Um, but I think particularly where it sits for cities is with data. Um, and then I, I want to kind of turn to one city that we haven't talked Please, about, yeah. if we if we could. Uh, New York, I think, is a really interesting case study uh, with local law 97 and in particularly in the discussion around equity. So uh, that law applies to buildings that are over 25,000 square feet. And they depending on where they sit, they have different emission reduction targets. And that goes into effect in uh, in next year, in, in January uh, 2024. 
And what we're already seeing, what the data is already telling us, yeah. is that there is um, a com- we, we see low to mid um, income t- residents. Th- those are the ones that are, are, are having issues with compliance. And so what the mayor is starting to do is identify financing mechanisms. And so I think, um, you know, the point that Hugh raised around um, rebates and those types of things are very critical when we think about equity, um, because it's not that these um, communities didn't work in good faith. They did. Um, but there is an issue about equity and financing to address. Victor, maybe I could bring in you here. Um, you recently said people with disabilities represent an untapped potential uh, and are integral to the smart cities narrative. How do you think cities can become more inclusive uh, and ensure an equal opportunities for all? And how important is technology in playing that role? Well, thank you for having me here. I think George and Willie, you, uh, the discussion about this emerging blueprint um, needs to be grounded, not only on the research that is emerging on the needs, but on the active participation of the communities that want to feel like they belong and want to see policies and programs that represent their needs. So I bring to this discussion my experience as a regulator in the U.S. I was served on the U.S. Federal Access Board. So there are regulations and, and uh, guidelines that set a framework for equity, inclusion, and accessibility. The question becomes, how do we look at these emerging regulations and frameworks like zero commissions, climate adaptation, digitization, and digital transformation, and ensure that throughout those, there is a sustained and technical approach on accessibility and inclusion. And how do we leverage tools like artificial intelligence to accelerate that while also amplifying community engagements? So to have an authentic way isn't just a bunch of consultants or policymakers coming up with the solutions, but having mechanisms for communities to come together with these emerging blueprints that both educates the communities on what the transition looks like, but also informs the transition with the voices of those communities. So the example that I was going to raise was the CTO of the city of Amsterdam, who is one of the most progressive technology divisions in the public sector. And he partnered with my foundation on a three-year project to look at how we could use machine vision as well as machine learning to audit city sidewalks and pedestrian paths for obstacles for barriers, for curb cuts, for street laps, in order to in order to have data on upgrading those facilities. And the difference is that you could send out thousands of people with clipboards 
to audit the city, or you could feed the algorithm millions of photographs and get that heat map that then helps direct investments. So these are some of the emerging ways that we can think about amplifying conclusion through AI. So not just AI, artificial intelligence, but AI to amplify inclusion. Yeah, absolutely. George. Look, I couldn't agree more with what Victor just said. And I, I wanted to mention an example that I think you, you might be aware of, uh, because that's where I saw it the first time I was in Singapore um, a few years ago. And they showed me an app that the Department of Public Works, I believe, at Singapore had developed, where if you see a pothole, if you see trash, mm -hmm. you take a picture of it, it goes to the Department of Public Works, you know, they will send someone to fix it. It's win-win on both sides because now, you know, like Victor was saying, you have people doing the monitoring on behalf of government, but I mean, it's getting fixed. So you're also getting some gratification out of it. So everyone's happy, right? Shortly after that trip, I was somewhere else in a you know, different country, different city. And I was telling them about the application in Singapore and I was so excited. I said, look, you know, there's that application and you can take a picture and, you know, save money and, you know, the whole story. And, you know, there's no expression, you know, on their faces. And I said, what's wrong? And I said, well, you know, we tried it um, a year ago and we had zero intake. So even though that application was around, no one actually wanted to use it, right? What, why they didn't want to use it, I don't know. I mean, it's a nice, it'll be an interesting psychological case study to understand why they didn't want to use I mean, do, they, do you mistrust the technology? Do you mistrust your government? Do you think maybe, you know, nothing will happen? Maybe they'll come after me because I'm complaining. I mean, I don't know what, what exactly. But that level of engagement where you're actually taking action and, you know, you're feeling part of the problem and fixing the problem, I think is, you know, kind of emphasizing what Victor was saying. You, you're probably familiar with that application, yeah? And, and, and just to share that, I think even when we started, it was not uh, a huge take-up initially, but I think the department that's, that's behind it, um, they stuck to it. Yeah. And one of the things we made sure is that every feedback that came in was responded to, and we showed the citizens what was done. Then that you know, amplified the, the degree of trust in, in using it. And, and today, you know, we have several hundred thousand uh, users uh, actively using it. So it, it, it's, a, it's a tremendous, but it takes... I think time and um, uh, a bit of determination to see it through. But uh, once it's in it, uh, I think it's a tremendous benefit from any city to be able to get that kind of benefit and feedback from, from our citizens. Um, just, just to share that, you know, even for Singapore, in terms of accessibility, um, we, we haven't quite tapped into machine learning and machine vision yet, um, but we do have many volunteers out there, not quite a clipboard, but with a, with a tool, with an app. Crowdsource. Uh, yes, to crowdsource. to crowdsource routes that are accessible for persons with disability. And uh, I was sharing with uh, Victor that um, uh, many of our legacy routes, especially in the downtown area, are not accessible because they were built at a point where the codes didn't quite apply. And in some cases, we've had to manage conflicts in regulation. One example being flood prevention. So that's part of climate adaptation. And that means certain areas have to be raised in terms of their, their platform level. But once you do that, it creates an access problem for persons coming in. And sometimes the only place they can access is to take the long way around uh, to get in. So it's things like that we realize we have to work a lot harder yeah. to address those conflicts. 
And again, we are trying to make better use of uh, technology in terms of the submissions that go into the system so that we begin to spot where different regulations are causing a conflict which the, uh, the qualified person, the architect, may not be able to address uh, on their own so that the regulators can step in to, to make a call what, what needs to be done. Yeah. Um, Walid, what kind of strategies and policies can cities adopt to facilitate a successful transition uh, towards sustainable energy systems and the energy transition as a whole, um, but also at the same time ensure a just and equitable transition, um, considering the needs of workers and communities affected uh, by the shift? Uh, so I want to piggyback on what Hugh just said, uh, and I have an example of a, um, uh, a, a home uh, that uh, we was recently looking at to design. Now, um, I, I think the ideal that many uh, people in the real estate business or those who are in, in, uh, trying to create a more sustainable lifestyle uh, from an energy perspective, at least, is to have the buildings that we live in or the homes or the office, whatever, um, uh, use as much energy uh, as they can as they can generate. So, um, in order to do that, we need to maximize uh, the amount of surface area where uh, we can generate uh, elect uh, electricity, um, but also the the regional equilibrium of, of how much we, we're consuming. In the example that I have, um, uh, we uh, there was there was. Uh, um, uh, a need or, or a request to put solar panels on the roof. But people use the roof now, especially in Saudi, as, as densities are growing in the city. And so uh, land parcels are getting smaller and smaller. Uh, and so when I grew up, I, I used to play outside. Now uh, we kids play upstairs, like in, in the roof, flat roof. Now you have an option. You can either cover the floor with solar and that means that you have no use of, of that roof or you can put it as a cantilever. If we were to do that, cover it with a cantilever that exceeds the zoning regulation uh, because this is considered covered roof and therefore you're no longer allowed to build there. And so this is just one example of how two things are contradicting. Uh, if you have a, a target or goal to make your building net zero, but also you're making it impossible to, make, to, take, to, to generate that amount of energy, then yeah, I mean this is as is conflicting. It's mutually exclusive. So that's that's uh, that's one example. I think when it comes uh, back to the question of equity, uh, um, I think there's a certain perspective in, in Saudi, maybe maybe in the GCC countries as well. I, I I can't speak for other countries, but 40, 50 years ago, when we talked about equity, uh, we talked and we talked about making sure that everybody in the country, every citizen. Uh, has development that reach, reaches to them. So my, my grandma, I was telling George earlier, uh, my grandma was in, you know, uh, uh, used to live in the upper mountains of the southwestern uh, region. She had a small black and white TV, one incandescent lamp. She had one fridge and a water pump that was turned on and off. That's all what she had. And the amount of infrastructure, and she was in the middle of a village with no, no neighbors. Uh, uh, everybody left. But the amount of infrastructure to get electricity to her by today's standards, I'm a sustainability guy, I would say this is just not worth it. But that's not equitable. Today, equity looks a little bit different. It's no longer, and so in the past, there was a sense of national pride. No, no person behind, no person left behind. Everybody gets water, everybody gets electricity. Cities have an opportunity now to, to, to centralize all that and, and to create economies of, of scale where you make sure that 
everybody has access to that at affordable rating if we can get a bit more creative with with with, with financing as i mentioned earlier yeah, I regulation and uh, yes. and engagement i just want to add on to walid what what uh, walid was uh, contributing that uh, actually there is a lot of opportunity for public private partnership in scaling up uh, sustainable solutions and what we've seen uh, in singapore you know uh, through the effort to solarize the nation uh, we found if you if you leave it to you know individual owners and developers it it moves at a glacial pace um, so the housing board actually stepped in to to really aggregate demand across the public sector so that individual buildings and, and owners were not just left to find their own source and we found actually there were economies of scale uh, we could uh, best source uh, the most cost-effective solutions uh, and you could centralize the expertise on how to mount, where to mount, and importantly, how to maintain and sustain those solutions. And if you leave these to individual owners, sometimes it, it doesn't quite get going. The, the same experience, I think, with uh, district cooling. Uh, again, it's not something you can leave it to you know, individual building owners to work out, but it really only works at scale and with the collaboration of the, uh, of the authorities. So I think some of these actually for uh, cities going forward, there's a great opportunity for conversations to mm. say, how, how do we implement this? How do we move forward? How do we learn from people who have already done it before? And uh, we believe very strongly in that opportunity as well, the need you know, for cities to share what they're doing. Thank you. I was just going to add that I think another part of this is the commitments that cities are making to our decarbonization and net zero. And that's allowing us to have a conversation at a different level with city leadership where it, it wasn't happening before. And to the point about this, co the collective, as opposed to the individual, um, that cities are within their own infrastructure are willing to make these investments that they go looking beyond the first cost, which is often a hurdle. And so we, as um, within our industry, with the, the opportunity that we can provide our customers is data and understanding the, the total cost of ownership of the technologies that we provide um, and enabling the continued optimized operation of those products through service and digital. And that's, um, that's a very different conversation than we've had in the past because of uh, this um, ongoing commitment to decarbonization. If, if I can add to that, and I think uh, Corey just reminded me when she said local law 97, uh, I think, like you mentioned earlier, and, and there was there was this tendency, at least in, in Saudi, to have a, a one size fits all to some degree for everybody across the, the, the country. Uh, that's driven by uh, a, a, a desire to for equality. And so everybody is on the same page, I think. In New York City, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, uh, they have a stretch code that's on top of the state code, and these are two different jurisdictions. In Riyadh, as as very recently, um, there's a, a new sustainability strategy with a bit more stringent um, requirements on on environment, energy, water, biodiversity that exceed the requirements of of uh, what the national law is, and that's an opportunity. Uh, strategically, Saudi is trying to put three cities uh, in the top 100 cities in the world, one in the top 10. This is an opportunity for cities to demonstrate their leadership and be a little bit more freed from the national baseline, which sometimes uh, in cities that are maybe economically more able to, to exceed them, um, to maybe dampen their aspirations. And so um, that's another example of how cities can so go above and beyond and showing their leadership 
and creating uh, uh, opportunities for other smaller tier two cities to yeah. follow. So David, if I can add something to Please. what Walid just mentioned. So I agree in, in, in principle with Walid. I think where the challenge is, is sometimes in the application. So most countries, you pay your income taxes to your federal or central government. You don't pay to the city. I mean, some cities will take a small amount, not, I mean, you, I think you were mentioning New York. So if you lived in New York, you'll pay something to New York City, but most cities won't do that. So most of your money goes to the federal government or the central government. Where the city gets its money, it's from fees, from property taxes, from, you know, things like that. There's a huge disconnect between how much money goes in one direction and how much money stays with the city. But you as a citizen, you're expecting that your services are coming from the city. You're not expecting, you know, I mean, when you look at education, roads, um, waste management, solid waste management, I mean, all of that, you're looking at your city, not at the federal government. Now, the way it works, again, in most countries is that there's a reallocation of funding towards, you know, how much money goes back to the city so that they can invest it into some programs. And as much as one would love to believe that this process is fair and equitable and, you know, is managed by, you know, unbiased machinery, that's usually not how it works because there are, you know, voters and there are people who don't vote, so you don't really pay as much attention to them. And then, but then there are people who vote and also contribute, you know, financing to campaigns, etc. So the process is not, you know, as crystal clear as you'd like it. So the process gets corrupted along the way, right? That challenge has not been entirely resolved anywhere, right, to, to this day. And where you see it is, and we've seen some cases where if you take a city that just desperately requires an urban transit line, so, you know, investment in a new metro system, subway system, intercity rail system, versus build some roads outside of the city, you know, in some of the richer areas in the city that pay probably more taxes than what you collect in the city. More often than not, the decision will go to let's build some roads outside of the city, not because we feel that it's, you know, the economically most advantageous solution, but because of political realities, right? So as much as one would like to think that, you know, inequality and equity can be guaranteed, there are a few things. And I'm, I'm sure Victor, you know, will have an opinion on that as well, right? I think there's three things. So listening to the discussion, and putting on my hat as the professor of urban planning at the University of California, Berkeley, I realized that people need a framework for, for this emergent blueprint. And perhaps a framework for a city that's both sustainable and equitable deals with what Walid said, which is getting rid of this conflicting policies, doing an audit on all of the, the legislation and the local municipal ordinances to ensure that there are no policy obstacles for both advancing equity and sustainability. So that would be the first pillar. The second pillar is leadership. If you have a leader, a mayor, understands the, the synergy between equitable, digital, sustainable, uh, ecosystem within the city, that leader can create a vision for that city to become an emergent model. 
The third pillar, the administrative and coordinating capacity of the implementing agencies. You was talking about his work on the building council, the building coalition, right? What are the ways in which the building, the building uh, contractors and building industry coordinates their efforts with community groups around sustainability or inclusion? And how does the government get public roads and transport, you know, the economy, all the various efforts to coordinate around these two dimensions to work together? And then the fourth pillar, which we often forget, is mechanisms for the participation of the targeted groups. So the fact that George was able to do a study on 6,000 people, the question is, how does the city do that continuous learning with the participation of the groups that are most effective? And the final pillar for this emerging blueprint is attitudes. And we oftentimes forget, even though there are laws and policies and leaders, if people don't understand, if people become apathetic, if people think it's too difficult or confusing, their attitudes, their level of trust is so low that you can't mobilize the change. Even if you have the money, right? There's still going to be a, a, a deficit. So that, I think, is an emergent blueprint for making progress yeah. on inclusive and equitable cities. Um, I just want to build on that point, uh, maybe Hugh and Waleed. How do you get the citizens to take ownership of the sustainable transition? Um, I'll share a couple of things from our, our own experience. Um, I think one is um, when we worked with our industry partners, You know, one of the things we recognize is that cities and the built environment, there, there are many, many different stakeholders and really need to get them in the room uh, to sit down, to share a common vision of where they want to go. And uh, then to hear out, you know, how, how that might unfold for them. Because the destination may be the same, but the journey may not be the same. Or at least what people anticipate uh, that journey may entail. And for us, because we were driving, there were two efforts. One was the green building effort. Um, and this one required us really to work with industry partners uh, to set up uh, a Singapore Green Building Council that cut across all the different stakeholders. So there was a mix of developers, architects, engineers, yes. uh, mechanical engineers, uh, FM people inside. And that's not how they're typically organized. So, you know, it's one of the first associations from the industry that span all interest groups. And the people inside actually could move things forward. Whereas in the past, you'd have, you know, a debate between the industry and the government you know, do more, no, we can't, you know, it costs too much. You know? So actually when you have industry on board, that, that moves things uh, forward. Uh, a second example I will share is uh, a recent project that we completed, uh, which is really about uh, rendering our neighborhoods uh, dementia friendly. And again, the literature that was out there could not quite convey what was needed. And uh, this was a team from the Center for the Bull Cities working with the community we worked with them to understand what a person with dementia actually goes through and their caregivers. And actually, we found that there actually were a lot of insights that, that could not otherwise have been gained uh, just from, from a, a literature search as well. So that allowed us 
And because you know the inputs came from the community, there was a lot more ownership over the solutions that came out. They weren't just delivered uh, fully, fully done without any inputs from, from the community. And we recognize from that experience that you really do need to implement this in conversation uh, with, the, with the direct stakeholders involved. So, you know, it's something that we do encourage. We saw the benefit of it during the pandemic because during the pandemic, we had to implement some very tough measures that impacted the, the, the built environment. Um, but because we had these conversations already ongoing, um, people came forward and they, they recognized what needed to be done. Something that could not have happened if we had not built those relationships in, in the first place. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to again speak from a Saudi perspective, and I think it, it, it varies quite a bit. Um, my observation has been, uh, or my experience also has been in, in our uh, uh, engagements, that there are two, sometimes three uh, motivations uh, the first one would be internal, or, or this is just people value sustainability. And this is the minority, in my opinion, at least from my, my, my engagements. And this is not just the minority, but it's limited also to a certain generation. So it's the younger generation. Sure. So that's the first. And so um, you appeal to that, uh, and we engage on that. I think that the second, perhaps bigger one from where I sit, is appealing to the sense of national pride. Um, and because of the leadership has put forward a vision, um, and the vision is tied quite well to sustainability in general, sustainable development, and then the implications on cities, um, it, that argument goes far more than the first one. And then the third one is, as part of this transformation that Saudi is going through now, uh, there's a, a quite a bit of social transformation as well. And, um, and there has been waves of um, the Saudi government sending uh, students, people abroad um, to, to, for education purposes and, and, and to get experiences and, and get them back to Saudi. I think there was perhaps an inflection point in the 1980s. I think we're in an inflection point right now. And also, um, because of the trends that are happening outside of Saudi, um, in cities like Amsterdam or London, or, or a lot of the trends there are driven around sustainability. Therefore, when we're trying, for example, Roshan, my company is trying to build new urban landscapes and trying to, you know, break decades of stagnation in how cities are managed and developed. We also include some sustainable concepts through that. And so that also uh, um, this, this uh, broad awareness that happened from two decades or so, decade and a half of people going educated and pe people uh, uh, having the opportunity, you know, with, with economic prosperity to travel and see other examples mm -hmm. that no these are no longer foreign. Um, and so it's easier for people to, to fathom them, to digest them, and also to integrate them. And that we use that core engagement as well. Absolutely. Um, I'd love to open up to any questions uh, from the audience. So if you do have uh, anything you wish to ask the panel, please put your hand up. I've got one more question, uh, Corey. Um, how do we measure the success then uh, of how cities are transitioning? What sort of metrics should we be looking for uh, in order to, to help know that we're going along the right sort of direction? Well, there, there's a lot there um, in terms of looking at um, the overall carbon footprint of a city and measuring that over time. But I think where it really starts is at the individual building within the buildings. Um, you know, I, I want to touch on a point that Victor talk, talked about in terms of people. <laughs> this only works if we move hearts and minds. And, um, and, and often the way that we can do that is providing data. 
um, carrier provides a technology called Abound, where we're, it's a digital application where we're able to provide insights in terms of how the building is operating um, from an energy perspective, as well as from a health perspective. And when you bring it down to the individual level, um, that's where you, you educate, you, you help the, the building occupant understand the space that they're in, the energy consumption, and health is very personal. And that is becomes very motivating to understand that. And so when I think about um, how we're going to drive this, uh, we have to change behavior and we do that through education and also through we have to make it visual. We're, most of us are visual people and making it um, interesting in that, so that they can understand this, the space that they're in. And, and therefore be motivated and start to ask questions. Well, why, why is the building not performing this way? Why is, why is this indicator off? You may start to have a conversation with someone in a building who, who would just never even think to engage with a facility manager. And, and, that's, and that's really when you start getting that engagement and understanding. And the other thing that cities and, and, and buildings can do is to gamify. Right. How, how do you take this information and make it a bit competitive? Um, and I think that's that's where things can, can become interesting. And, and um, so, so, yeah, so I mean, I think there are several standards out there in terms of how you look at um, the, the decarbonization of cities. But it really starts with people and providing that education and that excitement about getting them into into the in part of in part of the dialogue. I think what all of us have in common is that for any emergent blueprint, there has to be a compelling story. And the story it has to be based on people's inherent drivers for a better future, right? So where are we at today? And what does that future look like? And once people can have that vision, like the Saudi vision 2030, like the vision of all these, these countries, once that vision is clear and compelling, that the resources, the attention, the motivation, the pride, you know, becomes that tangible catalyst. So I fully agree, but I, I want to also add something that you mentioned. You know, I think the pandemic was a huge learning experience for all of us. So two things that come to mind, right? I mean, the pandemic in some ways was just terrible from a health point of view. I think there was an increase in inequality. I think there were some countries that did not, have, did not have the right technology footprint to be able to respond to it. So, I mean, there are some truly, truly, truly sad things, right? So let, let's agree on that. But there were also some things that were happening before the pandemic, as far as the urban landscape that were changing and that the pandemic accelerated and that we all had to kind of learn how to adapt very quickly. And, you know, that opens up a couple of things that I want to mention. So take things like work from home, um, autonomous vehicles, um, the no need to have an urban design where you have a city center in the middle and then you have radial urban transport going to the city. And that was starting before the pandemic. It certainly accelerated a lot during the pandemic. And now it's kind of the point where most people do not want to go back. I mean, unless there's a good, good, solid reason. Most people do not want to go back to work uh, from the office. They want to at least have the flexibility of doing a few days from home. You'll see that the biggest number now of um, real estate projects are going to be a redevelopment of office buildings into residential areas in the middle of the city. 
So a couple of learnings here. One, the idea that with technology, you can live anywhere, top of the mountain, who cares about the city, that's been totally disproven. Because if that were the case, why would people be moving back to the center of the city to live in a converted office building that's been reconverted now into a residential building? The second thing is how cities plan for the future is not the same model that they've been using to plan for the future in the last 50 or 60 years. That's totally changed. And then the question is, do the cities have the right skills within the city to be able to plan for that future? This is where we find the biggest disconnect. Um, these are very skilled people that need to be at cities working on those designs. And if you look at the ability of the cities to attract those people, it's certainly not commensurate with what the private sector can do. So, I mean, a couple of good points, bright spots, but also some challenges. Absolutely. Just very short, George. Please. Everything you just said calls for reskilling. We need to reskill across all these systems in order to deliver the blueprints. So, training, reskilling, all of that. Absolutely. Uh, any questions from the audience? Really exciting discussion. Um, I have a general question. How do you still um, enforce these large-scale initiatives while still maintaining people's freedom? Give, give them a, a better alternative. Yes. So, you, you I mean, for, for Singapore, uh, just our example with transport, um, it's hugely expensive to own a private vehicle in Singapore. But if we did not put in a public transport infrastructure, that gives people the option not to spend that money, um, yeah, you'd, you'd have major pushback. So you have to, if you want to move people forward, you have to be able to provide alternatives that are better than what they had. I don't think people enjoy sitting in traffic jams either. So if you have a great public transport system, um, if you put jobs near where people live, or you put homes where the jobs are, uh, then suddenly you have an option. And um, I think the way forward is um, both a conversation with the citizens, uh, but also show them what's a better future uh, as well. Thank you. Um, so I'm a, we're from a private developer, so um, I, I, I wouldn't say that we impose anything on anybody. But uh, I think uh, typically, uh, if you look at, if you want to go shopping for an apartment or a home and you pick, you say, I want this style interior or that style interior, or this style fridge or that style kitchen, you have options typically. And, and, and uh, our company is looking at these options to, for, for marketing purposes. You know, you want to sell, you want to give the customer what they want. But one of the things that we're building now is, is uh, different tiers of different options of how the building or the home is sustainable. So we can increase your um, uh, energy efficiency or, or add some uh, a package for solar or add uh, uh, water recycling uh, in your home. But again, the, the objective is for you to have an option. So at the end of the day, you, you need to have a home. And the objective is you need to have a home. If you can afford it, we would love to also include sustainability dimensions in the that optioneering that you would have. Uh, but that's one other uh, alternative that we would... And that sort of thing will help you create economies of scale and make it cheaper and things like that. And, and engagement, I think, I think part of that once, you know, if our typical neighborhood would have 3,000 more, more or less homes. Um, if 100 of them in the first uh, um, neighborhood 
by this, by the fifth or sixth or seventh neighborhood, it could be a thousand because they saw so-and-so and it looks cool. And uh, we know it, and we saw their energy bill go down or whatever it is that, oh, maybe it's just people like to, are jealous from each other, whatever the, the motivation is. I think uh, my initial thought was one size fits all. And I think that that's a mistake. Mm. I think uh, um, it's just creating options like, uh, like Hugh mentioned um, and, and then scale it from there. Question over here. Uh, hello, everyone. So um, interesting point when, when you were mentioning that we need to put homes where uh, the jobs are. So I wonder if we should not put jobs where the homes are. Because, uh, you know, we didn't talk about embodied carbon and the new infrastructure and how we, we talked a lot about energy, uh, you know, building performance uh, and emissions from operational steps. But what about the, the new infrastructure? How, how can we, because it's a hard to buy sector, right? We are talking about steel, cement, concrete, all that. So we need to design better. We need to plan better uh, and eventually uh, adopt circularity in terms of, you know, transform existing infrastructure, retrofitting, and eventually um, not building so much, uh, or at least, you know, allow to build on, on places where, where, um, where we can thrive and, and expand infrastructure in a way that is more affordable, more sustainable and equitable for, for people. For instance, I come from Lisbon, Portugal, uh, we, we now face a, a different issue, which is the fact that we have um, homes at, at downtown that people cannot afford, um, which is a big problem. So uh, people work in the, in, in the center of the city. There are homes there, but they cannot afford. There's an equitable problem there, an equity problem there. Just to bring these topics. I know this is a, a large discussion, but just... Uh, Any comments on... Yeah, look, so coming back to this uh, research that we had done, uh, home affordability was one of the key issues that came up. Uh, again, cities like Sydney, Vancouver were the highest on the list, right? So the, in those cities, the biggest issue for people was home affordability. And it's normal to think that it's going to be home affordability in the cities. Now, there have been a lot of schemes to address it. Uh, there have some cities that have done a really good job at it. I keep thinking of what Vienna, for instance, has done, where the government actually maintains a stock of housing that they allow the people to, to access. So there are now some schemes about creating land banks, land trusts, where you know the city owns the land, but the building, the construction can be owned by the private sector. And so this way you kind of manage how much cost people have to afford. But you're right. I mean, it is a huge uh, problem. You know, if you'd like to be in the city, work in the city, you have to go to work and you'd like to also live in the city. Uh, in some cities, it's just not doable. Uh, just got a question over here. Thank you. Hi, hi everyone. Um, so I have a question on the inclusion question itself and uh, maybe it's for Victor and George and others. Um, so based on what you've discussed, uh, there are, if we are to group people in the city, uh, we can, in, in, in terms of how we address urban development and urban planning, we have people who are able to be included. There are people who are unable to be included for whatever reason, you're missing the mechanisms, you're missing the access, etc. And there's also people who are willing and people who are unwilling. So they're unwilling because they mistrust the government, they don't like the system, whatever it is. So... For that matrix, if we like, that group of unable and unwilling. Yeah, 
How can we address those? How can we prioritize those impacted stakeholders in the urban development? Well, I can start by just saying that if a city creates so many barriers, then those individuals will not have a sense of belonging. And if you don't have a sense of belonging, you don't have a reason to help build that city because you don't think that city was built for you. So that's where radicalization, marginalization, poverty has a cycle, this vicious cycle. Now, if we can create mechanisms that are constantly looking at affordability, accessibility, equity, the policy frameworks, like the ones we discussed, the capacity of the agencies to engage the private sector to combine incentives, and including the discussions here at COP, not only around public-private partnerships, but public-private and philanthropic partnerships, where there's innovations where philanthropy can de-risk private sector investments. And the, and the public sector can then facilitate the conditions for those projects to be more successful. In fact, well, we need to be innovative and we need to be bold because the scale of transformation is not going to be met by doing incremental change. It needs to be radical systemic change and we need to find ways to align those interests to create the future we need. And, and I'll add one more thing. And actually, it's also a plug for EY. If um, if you have time, go to EY and do a search on connected citizen. And I'll tell you what that means. So um, we did a program on connectivity, citizen connectivity. And we tried to identify various personas uh, and how people want to interact with their own government. So you're right. I mean. Um, Take someone like my daughter, for instance, who was born after the internet, right? I mean, for her, why do I need to go to an office? Just, I mean, I mean, she has a hard time understanding why do I actually need to get in a car and go somewhere? You can do anything on Amazon, right? Why can't I get a driver's license on Amazon? Why can't, you know, I mean, so it's the same, same question. Um, but interestingly, we found that some people actually don't want that. You know, so some people do not want to have connectivity and online connectivity to be their only option to connect with their governments, right? Exactly. Some people actually want that paper form. They want to call someone and someone answer, right? And they don't want a chatbot. They want the human on the other line. Now, if you're in the private sector, you don't necessarily have to care for everyone, right? I mean, you know, you have a market segment and you serve that market segment. If you get some kind of ripple from other market segments, so be it. But you have a market segment. Government can't say that, can't say I'm going to serve those people and then the other ones forget about them. Right. So this is why you have to always have not a one approach, but a two approach, a three approach, four approach, so that you make sure that I'm looking after those who don't want to be connected as much as the one. Anyway, back to the plug, go to EY.com, connected <laughs> citizen. Sadly, that's all we have time for uh, today. My thanks go to Victor Corey Valid, 
Hugh and George, the team at EY, the audio uh, team and our lovely audience here in Dubai. And for those listening at home, please share your thoughts on social media. Thank you all so much for listening to Talking Transitions, a final plug, and we'll talk to you all, talk to you all again next time. Thank you.